Welcome to the Heal Ministry Podcast, where we believe that God heals us in the way that brings Him the most glory and draws us closest to Him. Whether you've received healing, you're in the fight of your life, or you gave up on God a long time ago, you are welcome here. As you come to the table, listen with an open mind, knowing everyone's journey is unique and God's goodness truly can be found amidst our physical suffering. Hey there, friends. I don't know if I've ever met you or not. If I have, I hope that we are friends. And if I haven't, I hope and believe that we would be friends if we met in person. So I'm glad you're here. And my name is Tara Bradham Denai. I am the host of the Heal Ministry Podcast. And today on the show, we have Alan Noble, who has written multiple books. But today we talk about his most recent one, which is called On Getting Out of Bed. And just as a side note, if this title interests you, maybe check out my Bible study that's coming out in just about a month from when this episode drops. It's called Through the Fog, and I believe it would be a great resource in addition to Alan's book to help give you motivation on getting out of bed to help you work through some deep wounds in your life that I believe God wants to bring healing to. So those are both in the show notes. And then a little bit about Alan is that he is a professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's also written Disruptive Witness and You Are Not Your Own. And he's written for the Atlantic Vox, The Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today, and First Things. So he's not new to this arena of writing. He has written a beautiful, vulnerable book that is a hard topic to tackle, but he does so in the book and he does so today. So I do want to give people a little bit of a heads up that we do explicitly talk about suicidal ideation. So if that is a trigger for you, maybe this is not the episode for you, but I really believe that it is powerful and I hope it will bring you hope if you've ever experienced that or know someone who is experiencing that. And so We did try to have grace and sensitivity, but please listen, knowing that we're trying to help and not hurt. And if there's anything that either of us said that is not helpful to you, please disregard that and just bring it to the Lord. And I know that he will be perfect in how he speaks and ministers to you amidst your pain. So that is a bit of what our podcast is about today. Why should we get out of bed when we're suffering mentally, emotionally, physically, or spiritually? Why should we get out of bed? And where is God's goodness amidst it all? Here is Alan Noble to talk to us about it. So, Dr. Allen, I am excited that you're here today. Not a super happy-go-lucky topic, but that's not really what we do on this podcast anyway. So, welcome to the Heal Podcast. I am excited to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, I would normally say a little bit about, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'll, I'll say your professional bit a little bit on the introduction. Is there anything outside the professional bit that you would want people to know to connect to you? I was very homeschooled. I have three kids and a wife and three cats. How old are your kids? Seven, 10, and 13. Okay. And what are your cats' names? Zeta. The Space Puffin, <laughs> Frankie, and Hobbs. There you go. All right. Well, I'm not a cat yeah. person, but we can we can move forward from there. I have an allergy, so. I'm not really a cat person either, but my kids are. And so that makes me a cat person by proxy. Yes. There you go. I respect that wholeheartedly. Okay. So, Alan, let's just jump right in. You wrote a book called On Getting Out of Bed. Yep. So what is the 
purpose behind that title? Why do you think most people at some point in our lives struggle with why why we should even get out of bed? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I wanted to write a book about this fundamental question of life, which is why live? Why endure suffering? Because one of the things that I learned as becoming an adult was that a lot of people are, are suffering from a lot of different ailments and problems and challenges, and they're hiding them. Growing up, I assumed that most adults had things together, that the ones who didn't were defective in some way, that they were broken or they they chose their own suffering be, with bad decisions in their life or they weren't good Christians or something. But then as I became an adult and I got to know more people, I realized, oh, no, that's not the case. The reality is that a lot of people are suffering from a lot of different things, and they they tend to be things that I had never even heard of or imagined. Mm-hmm. And that means that each of them has to face this fundamental question, why endure suffering? And to me, this image of getting out of bed is an image of enduring suffering. Absolutely. So one thing that I find really interesting in this parallel, you talk about mental health in this book, which is absolutely connected to physical, emotional, and spiritual as well. But the need for a diagnosis, I think, is very similar in whether you're looking for a diagnosis mentally or you're looking for a diagnosis physically. Mm. I even talked to my husband a bit about this because I've, I've been going through some postpartum OCD. And I was like, I don't know if I want that label. I don't know if it's helpful mm. to have a counselor say, yes, this is your diagnosis. Like, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing to have a diagnosis? Yeah. And so I'm going to read some of your own words to you. I know that's always fun. But I think I think this quote is really powerful. You said, if we aren't careful, medical and scientific language can obscure or replace the very thing it's supposed to be treating. It can draw our attention away from the conscious moment by moment responsibility of living by reducing the difficulty of that responsibility to a label. With a diagnosis, we try to objectify our suffering and we hope to put our despair in a nice, tidy medical box. We can set it on a table, examine it, and communicate it to others. I am not depressed. I have depression. It's over there. I'm over here. Except that suffering is never over there. (laughs) Thanks. I agree with it. That's a good quote. But I agree with it. It's always nice when you hear something you wrote and you're like, hmm, I still think that. Yeah. 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 No, I, I especially resonate with that idea that suffering is always internal. You know, there's there's a healthy way of externalizing your ailment. If you have a mental diagnosis, uh, mental illness diagnosis, there's a there's a healthy way of saying like, oh, I have postpartum OCD. I am not postpartum OCD. Mm-hmm. My yeah. personality is it, my personhood is much greater and bigger and and eternal than this diagnosis, and that's really mm-hmm. healthy and good. So I don't want to dismiss that, but there's there's also a way that we can, as I talk about in that quote, we can we can get so fixated on the diagnosis that it becomes its own thing. Mm-hmm. And that obscures, as I say, the day-to-day suffering, which, which is what we need to be focused on, which is the thing that matters most, I think. Yeah. It's a hard line and a hard tension to keep because diagnoses are absolutely valid and needed and helpful. And yet I was listening to a podcast yesterday and they were talking about how particularly in the West, we're kind of creating a victimization culture Mm. right now. And like even just talking about the pandemic, it just seems like people are 
you know, this was my life pre-2020 and this is my life now. And just like creating this gap in time of mm. how, how do we even move forward? It's like it was used to be AD and BC <laughs> and now yeah. it's like pre and post pandemic. And are we keeping people from moving on and to the future. Does that resonate with you at all? No, absolutely it does. Yeah, and this is one of the things, the very tricky things that I write about in the book is that there are times, there are periods, there are temptations to fall in love with your mental affliction. And not everyone will experience this, and so I'm not not universalizing this in any way, but I am saying that there is a temptation to turn mm-hmm. a diagnosis into a part of your identity so that you can have some social capital. And that's not something we like to talk about because it it sounds dismissive of mm-hmm. a diagnosis, and I, I am not doing that. What I want to say is you can both be suffering from a real illness, real mental illness, and at the same time fall in love with the identity that comes with that illness. And if that happens, my fear is that it's going to get in the way of you healing. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of tensions built in here that we've already discussed. And, And here's another one of those tensions, the desire to get a diagnosis and pursue healthy treatment with medical experts, mental health professionals, while not allowing your diagnosis to become who you are mm-hmm. um, as a part of some public identity that that defines you when because you're so much more than that yeah and I mean I you don't know my story at all but I didn't have a physical diagnosis for my pain for seven years and that was mm. debilitating right because yeah. actually it turns out that my bicep was degenerating inside of me so that was a huge oh, wow. problem but <laughs> yeah I I when you're talking I'm thinking about this is not a new thing. Like this is Jesus asking the man, like, do you want to be healed? Hmm. Right. And I think, I mean, there's a lot in between the lines in that story, but that his diagnosis or his inability had become his identity there. Right. Because he's like, well, Hmm. no one's here to put me in the water. No, you know, I can't do this instead of absolutely. I want to be healed. Heal me. You know? Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I had never thought about that before, but yeah, no, I think that story resonates strongly. Right, like we—it seems weird or dismissive when we talk about people who are in genuine mental suffering or physical suffering, any kind of suffering, to be like, "Do you want to be healed?" Well, like, of course I do, but like, this is a question Jesus, our Savior, <laughs> the Messiah, asks someone. Yeah, like that's the first yeah. thing he starts with: is "Do you want to be healed?" Yeah. Pretty interesting. It is. It is because it's possible to want to be healed and and be afraid of being healed at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like we're really complicated, and I think that's yeah. important to recognize. So it's possible to to want to be healed, to desperately want to be healed, and at the same time be afraid of what it looks like to be on the other side of healing. Because mm-hmm. who are you without this mental illness or this disorder yeah. or this affliction? Yeah. What does that even look like? And so I think, you know, that might be one of the reasons why he had to ask that. Yeah. No, I, you're making me think of a time when I was going through all of this physical suffering. I actually had the thought, man, if God healed me right now, 
I would have nothing hindering me. So my story is I was the fastest swimmer in the country my age until I tore my shoulder. And so this whole saga was I can't be what I want to be in this sport because of this injury that I've had. And I was like, man, if if God healed me from this, I would have no excuse. Like, And then it would just be did you do it or did you fail? Mm. Like, that's it. And I'm like, man, do I really want that? And yeah. I, I had to really huh. come face to face with that, right? Like, if God totally took away your deepest affliction right now, what would that really look like? And are you willing to steward and accept that responsibility? So let's talk about, you talk about the responsibility in here, which I love how you put this. And I hope people listening can really understand that we're trying to be direct and focused in a short interview, but we're not trying to be dismissive in your book in in no way is that. It's very sensitive. But will you talk a little bit about what it means to testify, like our responsibility to others and testifying to God's goodness, even when we're in a place where we don't know if we want to get out of bed? Yeah. So this is, I think, part of the book that has received some backlash is too strong, but some pushback from people because hmm. it feels like I'm judging them, but I'm not. I'm I'm instead highlighting something that is true, whether we like it to be or not, and that is that people are watching us. Yeah, People are watching us, and they're watching us to see how we respond to suffering. And you didn't ask people to watch you. You didn't ask to be a model. You didn't ask to be a witness to God's grace and mercy and and love and beauty and goodness. But guess what? You are. And there's something exciting about this Mm -hmm. that I would want to highlight. And that is that especially when you go through a period of depression, one of the first things to go is a sense of purpose. You feel like you don't have purpose and direction. Mm -hmm. And so it's exciting to recognize that your life is a testimony Your life is a testament, a witness of God's goodness. When you choose to get up each day, what you are signaling with your very life is that life is good, that life is worth living, that this life, even when it's very hard and very painful, is worth it. And that is powerful. Mm -hmm. It, it, It is one of the most powerful witnesses that we can have, because we're saying God's goodness is on display in our lives, even while we are suffering. And so that's a responsibility. It's, you know, the subtitle of my book is the the burden and and the gift of living. And I think it's both. I think it's a burden. I didn't ask to be my brother's keeper, but I am my brother's keeper. And this is one of the ways I keep my brother. I care for my brother in Christ and my neighbor by standing up each day by putting my feet on the ground and by getting out of bed and eating breakfast and feeding the kids and walking the dog or walking the kids and feeding the dog, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Those are the ways that we we bear witness to the world. Yeah. Is there a better way to accept this? Is it just like asking the Holy Spirit to help us accept this truth? Because I 100% agree with what you said in the book. I 100% agree with what you're saying now. And yet when someone looks at me in the worst of my pain and says, well, this is going to be a testimony to people one day. Mm -hmm. That is the last thing that I want to hear in that moment. Like that's not. So how I mean, how do we receive that? Because it is a truth, I think. It's just not one we like when we're in the middle of that pain. Yeah, no. So I can only speak from personal experience. Yeah. And what I would say is that what's what's helped motivate me is recognizing that this is what has to be done. 
and it needs to be done as an act of love because it is loving to other people and other people need me i guess that's i guess that's that's it that's it as i'm processing it verbally mm-hmm. it's recognizing that people people need me and when i'm in a pit of despair when i'm suffering that's one of the things that that escapes me is i feel like i'm not needed and i'm not valuable and i'm not necessary and that's a lie that's a lie from from hell and yep. the reality is that actually you are needed and when you hear that i am needed i don't know about you but i i have this super high bar right and so i think well i'm needed to be this great husband and great father and great teacher and great friend and all these things and i can't do that i don't feel i just don't have it in me and mm-hmm. what i'm trying to say is actually just showing up is good just yeah. just show up just show up don't you don't need to have this super high bar when when i say that you're needed you're needed to show up and that's and that's it just by showing up by getting out of bed by arriving you are communicating a lot and now and i i do want to note that there are times when when we can't get up and there are times when it's appropriate to stay in bed and rest and heal right so i'm not saying push yourself to the point where you collapse that's not that's not the point here but uh, where you have the ability, where you have the strength to, to get up, that's a testimony. That's what I'm yeah. saying. I'm going to play a little devil's advocate with you. Yeah. But it's just someone who listening, let's say kids are out of the house or divorced or something. And they're like, yeah, Alan, but I actually like, I'm, I'm not a parent. I'm not a spouse. I don't know if my friends care. Like, I don't know if my life is a testimony to anyone. You know, why Why should I get up when you're that isolated? I don't know if I have a good answer or if I should even be asking this hard of a question. But no, that's what a would you question. say to someone? Yeah, so I would say that all of us, we don't, we don't even know how many people we are witnessing to by getting up out of bed. We don't realize who's watching us. We think we do. We think we have it under control. Yeah. We think we can control who we're witnessing but we to, but we, we don't. And even if you are isolated, there are neighbors, there are people around you that you, maybe you don't think about in that way, but you are a witness to them, the people you interact with when you're shopping, everybody. There are people all around you, the mailman. There are people around you who you are witnessing to, people who you don't even see, but maybe they see you and you don't recognize that. So I think we have to expand our vision and recognize that our being in the world, our being in the, our existence in this world resonates throughout. It echoes throughout the world. When you talk about some of this stuff, I am reminded of how you say that when we choose to give up or sin, it gives other people permission to do the same thing. And I don't know if this is where you want Mm. to tie in the road or not. I want to hear about that. I read that in college and fascinating how you've worked it into your book. But I know we can get into, I mean, you talk a good bit in your book about suicide. And so we don't need to beat around the bush of that. I mean, that would be... I guess the ultimate giving up on saying life is not 
worth living. And I don't mean that in a right. in an insensitive way, but just saying it's not worth getting out of bed. So when you succumb, is that an, a word to use yeah. to yeah. that? You uh, are telling other people, almost like giving them permission that this is an option yeah. for them as well. Will you just speak into some of that? Yeah, and I want to be super sensitive because I know that that suicidal ideation is a very difficult thing and yes. uh, hard to control. And so I'm not being flippant about that. Yeah. Um, but whether we like it to or not, when we do something, we are making it more imaginable for other people. So if I were to cheat on my wife, that would make having affairs more imaginable to my children mm-hmm. and to my students and to my friends. It would be something that seems more plausible and reasonable yeah. to do. And the reality is when, when somebody commits suicide, it makes suicide more imaginable to other people around them. Mm-hmm. And that's just a reality. Yeah. You can see this in communities where there are, are echoing effects of mm-hmm. suicides that, that take place, yep. and it's absolutely tragic. But that's something that I think we need to to recognize. And in, in Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, you know, it's about this father and son, but there's a mother who commits suicide. Mm-hmm. And her suicide is a testament to it. it, It's a witness to the claim that life is not worth living. Mm -hmm. And the father who chooses to move to to go on despite tremendous suffering and feelings of hopelessness is a testament to the son that life is actually worth living. Mm -hmm. Every day that he gets up, he's testifying to his son. So tell about what that what's going on. Like it's the end of the world. And basically that it's logical, like the mom's arguments make sense logically, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so her argument is, uh, it's, it's a post-apocalyptic setting. There are no policemen, no government, no secure bodies protecting people. There's just roaming bands of cannibals. And her argument is, look, the sky is filled with ashes. Things aren't coming back. Plants aren't growing. We're not going to have more animals. Things are falling apart. The center will not hold. Ultimately, we're going to be caught and we're going to be eaten. And you won't face it. You would rather wait until it happens, is what she says. And then she says to him, you have no argument because there is none. And from a materialist perspective, she's right. She's right that the most rational thing to do is to commit suicide because there is all this suffering and there's no hope for things getting better. And she's also right that he has no propositional argument in response, so he can't use logic to reason with her. But Mm -hmm. he does have an existential argument. He argues with his existence with his very life. And that argument that he gives is that life is worth living, that he has been called by God to care for his son, and we're all called to care for someone or someones, really. It's our self And to shepherd our yeah. own lives. Y- yeah, absolutely. Our, shepherd our own, our own lives, because our own existence is miraculous. 
And I think he knows, what's interesting is I think the father knows that about the son. I think he recognizes that, 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 that the, the son's life is sacred in some way, but it's hard for him to imagine his own life as being sacred. And that's often the case with us. It's easier for us yeah. to see like, oh, my friend's life is sacred. I, I, I would never want anything bad to happen to them. But when you're in despair, it's not hard to be, get to a place where you're like, well, but my own life, that's yeah. not that important. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I talk about in the book is recognizing, well, if, if your friend's life is sacred, then so is your life. And treating your life as sacred is a way of telling your friend that their life is sacred. Mm-hmm. And that's the positive spin about this, right? So, you know, uh, you know the, the negative is when, when you c- succumb to giving up on life, whether it's just, you know, choosing not to embrace life, not to get out of bed or, you know, at the extreme suicide, you're communicating, you're making it more plausible to others. But the flip side is what I, what I try to emphasize in the book, which is that you have this gift, this ability to mm-hmm. communicate, to witness to others and encourage them that their life is a beautiful gift from a loving God. And that's exciting. And that's the thing yeah. that we should focus on. Yeah, absolutely. So you said, I'm going to read another of your quotes that you say, when you no longer have hope for a pleasurable life, when you have every expectation of increased suffering, suicide is logical Unless the reason we choose to go on living is something greater than pleasure or freedom from pain or even a hope for a better tomorrow. So this testifying stuff is great. But really, your conclusion, why why is it really worth getting up in the morning? What is the deeper purpose? Whether the the big theological thing that you say or I know you say in the book, and it's also a short interview that you're not really going into your personal experience, but also like, why, why is it worth getting out of bed for you? Because a loving God created me, and he's sustaining me moment by moment in an act of creation. And this life is beautiful. Even when I don't see that beauty or feel that beauty, this life is beautiful. And this is what God has called me to. He's called me to this life that he's given me as a gift, even when I don't feel like it's a gift. So despite the pain, despite the suffering, despite the mental affliction, this is the life I'm called to to yeah. delight in. Hearing that, I, in a good place mentally right now, I'm like, absolutely, Alan. But then I feel like when we are in that suffering, we're like, man, but that doesn't sound good enough. It's like we're having a podcast right now about the logical argument, but it's almost like we need the Holy Spirit, we need the experience. It's like we need the feeling of it too, right? I'm like, do we just pray for people right now to, to have that experience? Because I'm like, you can listen to you and me talk about this all day and it, ha- it has to go to the heart, right? I don't know. I don't know. It's nice. It's really nice when your heart agrees with your head that life is beautiful and worth living. It's really nice. But it's not always going to happen. Sometimes your heart, your emotions are going to say, this is not worth it. Mm -hmm. And that's when your intellect, grounded in the Holy Spirit, grounded in the wisdom of good people who love you and who you can trust, those voices have to speak into your life and say, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that you're feeling this despair, Mm -hmm. but it's a lie. And so I need you to keep going. I need you to keep going. 
and that feeling isn't going to come. I mean, maybe it comes for you, but 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 for for many of us, that that doesn't mean hearing that outside voice doesn't mean that all of a sudden we feel like oh. Oh, now I feel like life has purpose. Instead, it just means that we choose, we make the choice. And that's one of the the Mm -hmm. keys, the centers of this book is this idea of choosing. Uh, We choose to act on the belief. We choose to, just like the father has this existential argument, his, his life, his existence is this argument. And I would highlight in the road... He feels hopeless, and it repeatedly yeah, throughout yeah, the yeah. novel, it tells us that he feels that there is no hope. He has no reason to hope. The days grow darker every day. Everything grows darker. But he chooses. His feet say something different than his heart mm-hmm. says. And so, oh, yeah, so it's nice when we feel it, but we're not always going to feel it, and that's got to be okay. Yeah, I had a story my pastor told recently that I will share. And this is like the exception, but it's, it is a really powerful testimony to God where they were at a men's retreat or something like that. And, uh, had gone through a few days. This was like the last session wrapping up. And he he was talking about, uh, we're trying to foster in a healthy way, the gift of prophecy, which is, is difficult to do, but also Uh I believe it is biblical. And, uh, so there was a guy there who felt like he had a word from God and shared it and said, you know, I feel like I'm kind of crazy right now, but I just can't get out of my head that I think there is someone here who has a suicide note written and it's on their desk at home right now. And you came to this gathering seeing if there was anything left in life and you're sitting here after two or three days thinking, nope, like this did not answer any of my questions. It didn't give me purpose. And you're planning to go home and take your life right now. And if that's you, like, would you be willing to to raise your hand and come forward? We want to pray for you. And a guy raised his hand wow. and it was him. And he, he did have a suicide note written at home. He is still alive today. And like this, the point of that was you can have all this head knowledge, you know, but gosh, when God comes in and says, yeah, but I, I know you personally yeah. and I, I care about you like this. And I'm going to show you in that moment how much I care that I know that is this, I mean, there's, there aren't words to that. Right. Yeah. But also holding that tension, not everyone has that story. It's amazing to us because it's not common. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, well, if God did that for that guy, why didn't he do that for my friend who committed suicide or something? You know, I mean, that's equally valid. So I'm, I'm sitting here in that, but then going back to the choice how how do we just tell our minds you have the choice and just say okay feet you're going to go where where my heart doesn't want to today yeah so in the book i i talk about doing the next right thing and i think that's what sometimes what it comes down to is literally and i've had to do this okay i'm going to put my feet on the floor i'm going to put my shoes on now i'm going to stand up now i'm going to open the door now I'm going to walk downstairs and so on and so forth and just doing the next thing because mm-hmm. thinking about the big picture just seems overwhelming and impossible, but I can do some concrete things. And what I have to do is say, this is an act of worship. I'm putting my shoes on to worship you, God. Hmm. I'm going downstairs to worship you, God. 
because by doing those things, I'm affirming that this life that he's given me is good and that it's beautiful and that it's worth living, that it's worth embracing and participating in, that he's given it to me not as a mistake, but as uh, with intentionality. So that's what I need to do. Yeah, that's really good. I'm sitting here trying to find the quote I wrote down and I can't find it. But basically what you said is at the end of all of this, the fact that we think our suffering will not end is a lie. Mm. That really it will end. Yeah. Because whether that's resurrection or God taking it, our pain away, it will end. Will you talk a little bit about that hope and why that's not like pie in the sky, but a genuine hope for us as believers? Yeah. Yeah, it's so easy if when you're suffering from a mental affliction or any affliction to get so accustomed to that affliction that it feels like this is what existence is like. This is what it's always going to be like. And that will lead you to a place of despair where you feel utterly hopeless. And it's important for us to recognize that's a lie. It's just not true. We will be healed at some point. It may be that we have a thorn in the flesh like Paul, and it's just not going away this side of paradise. But this, but paradise comes. Yeah. And on the other side of paradise, there will be healing. And and for many of us, there's healing or at least partial healing or remediation mm-hmm. in this life. And that's a blessing too. So I really think it's important not to give up uh, on the hope of healing because... One reason for that is, especially with mental afflictions, well, maybe not especially, but I know with mental afflictions that you have to be a strong advocate for yourself. If you're not a strong advocate, you're not going to get the help from the medical community that you need. And there is great help. Sometimes it's not the help that you need. It's not going to cure you, and that's got to be okay. But sometimes it can help a lot. It can make a big difference. But Unless you are committed to the to the belief that you can heal in some meaningful way, I'm afraid that you're going to fall into despair and just stop trying. And that's a dangerous place to be. Yeah. Well, the name of our ministry is called the Heal Ministry, right? And we say that God heals people in the way that brings him the most glory and that brings us closest to him. So we talk about mm. miraculous healing. We talk about medicinal healing. But we also talk about sufficient grace healing and ultimate healing in heaven or with our second resurrection, all that. We'll, we'll talk to Jeff Brandon about that soon. But, uh, you know, so I just want to encourage people that the reason we talk about those other types of healing is they're not excuses. Like, well, if you don't get healed, there's sufficient yeah. grace or heaven. Like those are actual real forms of healing that really do give us hope. So yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. One thing I do want to ask you is just on a personal level, if there is someone listening right now who maybe is in a suicidal ideation place from physical pain, mental, emotional, any kind of suffering, what would you want to say to them today? I know that's really hard, but... (laughs) Yeah, I would want to say, first and foremost, please reach out to someone immediately and be brutally honest and raw with them about where you are at. Find someone who loves you and you trust and communicate that to them. And even if that means taking a leap of faith, somebody who you haven't shared stuff with in the past, who you aren't that close to, find somebody 
and talk to them. That, I think, is the, the most important thing because when these thoughts get stuck in your head and they're not communicated and they're not shared, you're not going to get they, they they just reverberate and they grow and they expand. You need to get the help of, of a community. And so please reach out to somebody, talk to somebody, because your life is beautiful. It's good. I can tell you objectively that your life is beautiful and it's good. And God created it with purpose and direction and meaning. And there are beautiful things for you to delight in in this life but you might not feel that right now and that's okay, but you need to get help. You need to reach out to someone and get help so that you can feel those things and you will in time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for saying that. Yeah. Would you pray for people? Because I think that there's a just, let's just give this to God and let him do some battle and break and bind some things that only he can break and bind as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Father God, we thank you so much for today, for this day that you've given us that is full of promise and possibility. We thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy, that even when we feel broken and even when we blame ourselves for our brokenness and to whatever extent we are responsible for our brokenness, you are a God of grace and mercy and love. We thank you that you are a God of compassion who sees us in our suffering and desires us to be healed and desires us to be well. We thank you that you are caring for us this moment and every moment, that you create us and sustain us moment by moment every day of our lives. I ask that you would be, you would minister to those people who are listening to this, who feel alone, that they would feel your presence, that they would know that they are welcomed and loved, that they would recognize that they are a witness to other people of the goodness of the life that you have given them, and that they would embrace that witness and see it as an opportunity to glorify and worship you each day by getting out of bed, by going through their day, by pursuing what is good and beautiful and true. Thank you for your presence. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. We can talk all day, but there's uh, power in giving it to God, too. Thank you so much for doing this, Alan. Thank you for your time, and thank you for your obedience and, and vulnerability in tackling this. And the world needs it. So thank you so much for doing that. Happy to. Okay, so if that was just a little teaser for you and you really want to delve into this more, please check out Alan's book. I have linked that in the show notes. And side note, I just think it's a really beautiful cover. So don't judge the book by its cover, but it's also really pretty. might look good on your shelf. And I just think that Alan goes into a lot greater depth than we can cover in this interview. So if you're just even have an inkling towards this book, please check it out and see what he has to say. And I pray that it brings you healing. So thank you for being here. We have more episodes left in this season and we will see you here again on Monday.